0: Uh, hey, this is Ed. So
1: this is a podcast, is that right?
0: This is. Okay. We're just podcasting right now. That's awesome. This is Straight from the Cutter's Mouth.
1: Welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a retina podcast. At least once a week, we aim to bring you insights and perspectives from the world of retinal surgery. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Schreeder. We are back with episode and. 81 today. This is the preview of the March 2023 edition of Retinal Physician with a lot of focus on gene therapy and optogenetics. I'm joined by my two colleagues, Drs. Akshay Thomas and Priya Bakaria for this episode. Remember that you can find a link in the episode description to go to the American Academy of Ophthalmology website and claim CME credits. Now, The Academy has been really good to partner with us over the last few years and offer CME credits for prior episodes. Starting in 2023, requirements for CME became much more stringent. And one of the things that we discussed with the Academy is they'd be unable to really help us with the CME on a timely basis through no fault of their own. Through just basically the requirements that CME is putting on them without extensive sort of pre-screening and delays in terms of when these episodes would come out. And and we had a long conversation about one of the things we've always tried to do over the years here at the Retina Podcast is be very, very good about A, including as many people as possible, B, remaining as flexible as possible, C, being timely with our episodes and getting our episodes out every week, and lastly, not having any sort of outside influence on who is on the podcast and that's something that we've really kept uh, to our core we've gotten lots of offers over the years to have this speaker or that speaker or this sponsorship or that sponsorship anything that would involve influencing who gets to talk and what we talk about has been something we've rejected and this isn't coming from the academy but in order to maintain CME we would essentially have to have just a fixed bullpen of people who would be allowed to be on the podcast who would be pre-approved three or four months in advance, and in the end, um, it just doesn't make sense, and and the Academy and I have both agreed that it makes sense at this point. We're not going to be offering CME credits for episodes going forward, unfortunately, and again, that's just part of the CME recs that are there. We're always trying to do things for the listeners to give back, but it just isn't feasible to plan out episodes three or six months in advance and also stay current and offer things that are useful to you as a listener. So again, that link is there. You can claim CME credits for older episodes and those will always be there and archived going back a few years. But for episodes going forward, CME credits will no longer be offered. There will be some changes coming to the podcast in the next few months in terms of other ways we think of giving back. Uh, We may um, partner with a couple of our industry partners who have been very cognizant and willing to not influence our content or the participants on our podcast episodes, but are willing to offer funding that we can use for projects to give back to the community. And one of the projects that's been really passionate for me and for the other folks here at the Retina Podcast, including Dr. Louis Kai, is giving back to medical students, residents, and fellows, creating travel grants so people can go to conferences, receive mentorship from us. And so that's one of the things we're working on right now is is can we sort of obtain some funding and then use it to channel into scholarships for people to go to meetings, get inspired, and go on to amazing future careers. So keep posted over the next few weeks. This is a time of great change for the podcast, and I hope you enjoy this episode. We still will try to list some disclosures in the episode description, really for the sake of transparency. Even though we're not going to offer CME, I think it's really important to be transparent, especially when you talk about discussions like to this episode when we talk about gene therapy and Bio and all these companies, it's really important that you know where people stand, including me, uh, on the consultancy spectrum uh, and that we're very open about that. So please continue to enjoy and thank you for listening. Straight from the Cutter's Mouth is back with the March 2023 preview of Retinal Physician. Remember that Retinal Physician can be found online for free at retinalphysician.com. Joining me for this episode, two of my colleagues from around the country. We call them the serial gang. It's Dr. Akshay Thomas <laughs> from Nashville, Tennessee. Akshay, welcome. Thanks, Jay. And Dr. Priya Vakaria from Tampa, Florida. Priya, welcome.
2: Thanks for having me back, Jay.
1: You know, um, it, it's an inside joke. I don't know if we have that many people listen to enough episodes to understand inside jokes, but we had a long conversation about cereal, mostly driven by me and Akshay. Priya, fair <laughs> credit, was like, "This has nothing to do with retina, so I'm not going to participate as actively." Um, and then Akshay got a gift in the mail from a listener who sent him a cereal cup. So. Um, I'm not saying I'm jealous. Um, a is uh, I, I feel bad that I didn't get one of my own, uh, but B actually even came filled with cereal. Did it come filled with cereal, or is that just the picture you sent us? No, it was it was just a very thoughtful like
0: travel mug for cereal, which I've never, which is like ingenious. I've just never used one.
1: Important questions for this podcast: Has your cereal consumption gone up?
0: Well, it will now now that I have a device that I
1: can use. Oh, okay the car trip so so thank you very much to, to the listener involved well speaking of devices we're going to jump into this issue of retinal position in a second but um you know, we're recording this and it's going to go up just a few weeks after uh, safe overy got approved alan ho came on for like nine minutes we chatted very briefly about our thoughts um curious about um, what you guys think um akshay what do you think your utilization is going to be like the next six to 12 months uh, anything you're looking out for? Are you going to be someone who's waiting to see what happens? You know, um, w- what are your thoughts as it gets approved and uh, and about the label? Um, so yes, I'm I'm definitely going to be
0: waiting, very similar to other therapeutics that we've had in the market. Going to do a little bit of a wait and watch. Probably not going to be the earliest of adopters, but I do think I'm going to be spending a little bit more time thinking about um, which patients I may you know want to consider using it for and having the discussion because there might be patients that are just very eager to do something that I just wasn't aware of. So i probably start having the discussions, but I'll probably wait um, at least six to 12 months um, so we have some real world data and to get a better sense of who might be the right candidate.
1: end this Priya, any, any different thoughts about um, how you're gonna use it uh, next year?
2: You know, I agree with Akshay. I think the at the very least a discussion With every patient is warranted. Um, I think you know. I think I will start using it. I think I'll start using it in anyone who's monocular and has fovea threatening disease in their good eye, um, or if there's someone who has, you know, extensive progression. And I have to say, I am already surprised. I saw a patient today who has pretty significant GA. I don't actually think she has you know, any hope to have, um, recovery of, you know, obviously syphovary won't recover vision, but you know she's already 2200 in both eyes, but she is having progression of her central scotoma. And I talked to her about syphovary today and she wants it. And I even tried to talk her out of it because, you know, I talked to her about the risk of CNV and inflammation and how she's going to have no functional visual change, but yet she wants it. And so I think some of these patients are really desperate for anything because they've had Nothing at all. And so, you know, I think at least a discussion is warranted and it's really up to the patient at the end of the day to decide if they want it or not. But I agree with Akshay, you know, I don't think this is a therapy I'm going to be injecting in every single GA patient, but I do think it's a a huge turning point in retina and and I will use it for the right patients.
1: Yeah, I would agree with both of you. I think that it's a completely different question than when we talked about risk with um, broldicizumab, farisumab, any of these wet AMD or DME drugs, because we had treatment that worked so it was a little bit of a the threshold to switch to a agent had to be higher the safety profile had to be really good i think the burden of proof had to be much higher i think you start talking about a condition that's blinding um over time it becomes a more interesting question obviously we don't want any adverse events that make people go blind faster that's really would be devastating and for example in a patient who's monocular who's very motivated it'd be really scary if we had those sorts of adverse events where people would lose vision faster. Cause that'd be suboptimal for sure. Uh, but it thankfully seems like there were no major events in the trials. Again, we're always going to find out. Um, I I'm similar to both of you. I'm going to dip my toes in the water, very gingerly. I have probably, you know, in a practice where I see maybe, I don't know how many GA patients I'll see in a clinic. I don't see that many GA patients per clinic. I think, I think you probably see two or three max probably, one patient out of every two or three clinics is hyper motivated and like on the ball and wants to know when they can get this drug. Um, I just think the psychological part will be interesting, no matter how many times we tell people what to expect. I think there's always going to be sort of that hope that it will make them see better. And that will be interesting to see how it plays out over the next six, 12 months. But let's jump right into these articles. Um, So again, we got three articles to talk about that are all sort of looking towards the future rather than kind of things that are available now. So I'm going to kick things off. The very first article we're going to talk about was an article about gene therapy for dry AMD. Asan Rahimi and Austin Knapp from Stanford put this together. And I'll, again, I'll summarize. If you want to read the article, you can go find it on retinalphysician.com. But they just talk about gene therapy, the history of gene therapy, and then How could it, how does it work, you know, in terms of a viral vector, which we've talked about before in the podcast, and they go through, I don't know, associated viral vectors and how they work. They talk about the delivery methods and the pros and cons of those delivery methods, including intravitreal, subretinal, and suprachoroidal. And then they sort of transfer into talking about, okay, what about AMD? We're looking at medications like syphovary or Zymora that look at the complement inhibition. So if you want to link these two together, can you find a gene therapy? That simultaneously has a viral vector, but also helps out in terms of either the complement system or modulating um, apoptosis or cell lysis, and so they go through a couple um, of these things. The only two that are really in trial are Hemera and Gyroscope, um, both using an adenovirus-associated uh, vector. One of them is uh, Hemera was looking at intravitreal delivery of CV fifty nine, Gyroscope looking at increased expression of complement factor one CF one. CFI C- protein, excuse me. Um, so one of them is delivered intravitreal, that's hemera, One is subretinal using a um, delivery system that is um, given through the suprachoroidal space, also via a subretinal blood technique using vitrectomy. And then there are other things looking at sort of gene therapy um, in these trials. They talk about the focus and explore trials. And again, all of this is very prelim. And I've joked before in the podcast Akshay that we, I, I think it's good. We spend a lot of time at meetings and and these articles talking about phase one, phase two data, but it, it really ends up being for if I, I feel the cynicism as you spend three, five, ten, fifteen years out as people go through careers of not reacting too positively or negatively any of this data, because who knows? These drugs can live for many years, or they can die in a day if the, the trial results aren't what we expect. But maybe just the overall principle tying into what we just talked about, side ovary if this was a single treatment, right? Let's say let's change it from, hey, you need to do injections every 25 to 60 days. Let's say now it's intravitreal injection, one time reduces progression. I think most of us would say barring side effects, cost profile, okay, that's a no brainer. What about surgery, right? So like, do you think your GA patients would sign up to have a single surgery, but no injections? Is that a different, like which of those do you think is preferable for the average GA patient in your clinic?
0: Great question. Um, I I honestly say that, for a GA patient that is used to coming in potentially, you know, every six months or so, I think the proposition of a monthly, bi-monthly injection until the end of time doesn't seem particularly appealing for me to offer them or for them to have. I mean, if that's all we have is one story. But in a patient like that, you know, I, I would feel more inclined to offer, you know, a subretinal therapy. I, I think the flip side to it, which is exactly what you're alluding to, is that um once the once this is in there, it's in there, right? There's no undoing that. So if these patients suddenly develop some terrible CNVs that are just absolutely resistant to all forms of therapy, who knows, right? I mean, so so I think at the very least, having this discussion and educating ourselves about these things so that when the time comes, we can talk about them intelligibly with our patients. I'm not saying, I'm not sure how this works, but apparently it works, um, is at least certainly very, very helpful.
1: Priya, what do you think? Uh, you agree you, you, that you think most of your patients would prefer kind of the office visits and injections over surgery.
2: I mean, yeah, I think that I think not only, so I think patients prefer injections over surgery. The thought of having surgery is a little overwhelming to patients. Um, but also I think retina specialists prefer in office procedures compared to surgery, I think, I don't, I don't know about you guys, but I don't have unlimited or access and I Mm -hmm. think that most retina specialists do struggle with that. Um, and if we're talking about tons of GA patients, you know, getting our access is difficult. And so I think we all also prefer in clinic where it's under our control. Um, but, you know, with gene therapy, yeah, yeah, I think that that gene therapy is exciting for a potentially one time treatment either way that that could potentially give this viral vector and um, decrease the burden of this disease.
1: You know, it's always interesting because I think that we have this exact same conversation for wet AMD with gene therapy. And that's for a condition where doing anti vegf treatment, whether it's gene therapy injections, it really improves the visual outcome. This is assuming, again, maybe one of these, whether it's CD59 or a CFI, one of these will improve vision. But assuming they're all they're doing is reducing progression, this is actually asking someone to have surgery without any improvement of vision and just to slow damage. And obviously, different animal because there was no treatment but now there is treatment, and there will probably be another treatment if Ivaric gets approved. And so it is going to be sort of an apples-to-apples apples comparison. And it's interesting with wet AMD, we have a lot of patients and physicians who are like, you know, that's probably not realistically going to work. Like you said, Priya, it's probably unrealistic that I'm going to go get ORAXIS for these patients. And that for something that improves your vision. Imagine trying to get ORAXIS for something that doesn't cause visual improvement and trying to justify those cases. It'd be really challenging. You know, this ties in. So the next article is about current challenges in gene therapy trials. And I would like to blend the articles together in discussion. And Glenn, you wrote this article with Arshak Kanani and Catherine Peppel. And the subtitle is Managing Inflammation is a Hurdle That Must Be Addressed. Right up Akshay Thomas's alley, nothing gets Akshay up in the morning except his cereal and the thought of intraocular inflammation. Um, so this is sort of a Q&A where Glenn is asking some good questions about gene therapy, Dr. Kanani talks a little bit about dosing is really, really important from an immunogenicity standpoint. And that's why some of these trials have so many groups in terms of how the gene therapy is dosed. And then it also is this discussion, like sub therapy, it was like, oh, there's no intraocular inflammation, but these patients get these really dramatic pigmentary changes, right? We've seen these pictures from um, Regenex Bio, for example. And then intravitreal is kind of the holy grail. You guys have talked about you don't want to do surgery, but then you're not in this immune privilege, the space of the subretinal space, right? And then Catherine Peppel talks about, is it like uveitis, right? So is it an infectious or autoimmune uveitis? It's probably um, more immune in my opinion, but I'm uneducated, but she talks a little bit, it could be iatrogenic infectious because it is viral because you're using your viral particles. So we don't actually know what the mechanism of inflammation is, whether it's the viral particles and doing some viral type uveitis or it's actually autoimmune. And then are the same things that you would do for uveitis would they work for this, right? Is it going to respond the same way? Is it going to be acute and then smolder down? Is it going to be chronic inflammation? And all of a sudden you're taking a retina patient and turn them into a uveitis patient and stuff them into Akshay's clinic in the 15th hour of the day. <laughs> um, and Arsha talks about optic for adverum and infinity that there were doses that were quote-unquote too high. And he talks about the need for steroid cases of hypotony, choroidals, vision loss, that really slowed a lot of excitement when it comes to that delivery system, the adverum system. And so this, Glenn kind of goes into the last thing, thinking about all of this is about steroids. What about other non-steroid sparing therapies, right? Can, should these patients be on methotrexate, mycophenolate, should they be treated like transplant patients for other parts of the body? Seems crazy to ophthalmologists, but we have chronic we have multiple corneal transplant patients who, I remember Victor Perez is a when I was a resident, he'd put them sometimes on long-term immunosuppression to keep their transplant clear. And again, it's a different question because we have therapies that don't require this. But if you're talking about gene therapies, let's say, for diseases that have no cure, and this was the only option, maybe it wouldn't be unreasonable to have someone on long-term immunosuppression as long as someone's following them getting labs and making sure there's no sort of side effects from those medications. And then, you know, the last thing Arshad talked about was how do you sort of reduce uh, inflammation? He talks about the air fluid exchange, make sure there's no vector floating on the vitreous. He talks about the dosing, making really sure that you get the dose in the right spot. And then the last discussion is, you know, uh, actually loves this. this, Catherine Pepple, I quote, there are definitely not enough uveitis specialists to go around to <laughs> handle. Um, and she was talking about this immune set of response. And then she talks about what I just said, if it's a life-threatening disease, we're okay with significant modulation of the immune system to keep someone alive. Again, kidney transplant, heart transplant, lung transplant. This is a little bit different. Obviously, blindness is a big issue, but it goes down, I think, to other options. And then she talks about things even like rituximab, IVIG. You could get even more uh, dramatic in terms of the therapies you go to. So Akshay, I'm going to let you get first word and then go to Priya just because you are our resident UVI specialist. Thank God you are. and It's not Priya. <laughs> um, I mean, what, what do you think about this? I think it's a really fascinating conversation because I had never thought of this. i had always thought of it as an autoimmune phenomenon, but maybe it is infectious and maybe it mm. won't behave the way we expect it to. And the numbers and trials are going to be always so small. How are you really going to know how to manage these patients? So as a UVI specialist, what's your take on do you think that it will ever be acceptable to systemically immunosuppress someone methotrexate, mycophenolate, adalumumab for gene therapy? Can you imagine a, a, a disease condition where this would be true?
0: Yes. Yeah, I, I absolutely can. I think one of the trials, in fact, which is kind of on pause, actually had that built into their protocol where you had to have other rheumatologists or ophthalmologists immunosuppressing a patient simultaneously peri- perioperatively before you deliver this um, subretinal um, gene therapy. So I, I don't think it's far-fetched at all. And I'd say that, you know, and certainly in the U.S. world, we heavily even patients for potentially blinding conditions, you know, all the time. I think the trickier part here is kind of understanding, is there a patient-based stratification that you can have? Like just in all our trials, not everyone developed, you know, vision-threatening inflammation, right? I mean, the question is, do you Put a bunch of old patients on an immunosuppressive medication if they may have just developed um, a little bit of anterior chamber cell, right? Just to just so that you're capturing those patients that might have gone on to things like hypotony. Um, so it's 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 difficult. I think one thing that Catherine mentioned in the article, which I think is is very important, is that this is like a prime type of study for you know. For, for bench researchers looking in your mouse models of uveitis because you actually know what the trigger for inflammation is. If you were to literally administer this, you know, gene therapy or what, what have you to your to your mice, for example, and kind of see how they respond. I mean, that's very, very useful Unlike other forms of uveitis where we don't really know what the trigger is, here we actually know exactly what the trigger is. So we can actually study what is the amount of treatment or therapy required to kind of halt this inflammation, right? So I don't think it's far-fetched at all, but I think one thing I, I put a plug for this before, and I'll plug it again, is that in all these in all these trials, there definitely has to be better standard standardization of reporting or how we report uveitis in general, right? If you look at some of these trials, they'll say no, incidence of uveitis was, you know, whatever, 5, 4%. Well, well, that's not very helpful, right? Because that's a very, very large cluster of conditions with very, very um, levels of severity. So I think really kind of using
1: like our typical sun criteria, et cetera, is really critically in this trial for us to understand the gravity of the situation. What do you think, Priya? I mean, you, do you think, well, we definitely don't have enough UVA specialists for this. I, again, imagine certain conditions where it's totally worth it. It's really tough to imagine really broad spread conditions like diabetic retinopathy, AMD, large numbers of these patients, unless we start, actually starts churning out three fellows a year. I don't <laughs> imagine that most retina specialists are going to start becoming rheumatologists, although we could work with rheumatologists to take care of these patients. When you read this article, what, do you, what are your thoughts in terms of immunogenicity and you know managing these patients? I, as a retina specialist who's going to prescribe, for me, this makes me very leery where I'm like, you know what? I don't know if this is the best idea, unless again, you have a condition where there are absolutely no other options. You're going to go blind, especially if you're a kid. I think it makes a big difference, right? You're talking about one of those hereditary degenerations, totally different story. Uh, but I'm, I'm curious, Priya, do you feel similarly, or do you have other thoughts on this?
2: No, yeah. I mean, I completely agree. I think that when we talk about gene therapy for conditions um, that are treated currently with anti-VEGF therapy, I can't see how this is worth it. You know, I think that immunosuppression has its own challenges. Um, I just can't see myself getting on that, getting on board with that. I agree. If If it's something that we don't currently have a therapy for, or the therapy is not currently effective, then, then certainly, you know, if there's some kind of gene therapy that causes uveitis, but we can immunosuppress a patient, perhaps the risk benefit tips towards, um, you know, doing the gene therapy, but uh, you know, ideally it'd be great to find gene therapy where you don't have to systemically immunosuppress a patient. Uh, cause other than Akshay, I don't think any of us know how to do that.
1: Yeah. I don't know how to do that. Actually, can you uh, teach all of us? Can you gonna run ASRS? <laughs> no, but I think I think
0: again the point being kind of understanding the duration of inflammation is so critical, right? Yeah. Because if you say that the period of inflammation is is four weeks, there's really no reason to put someone on a, a steroid sparing an agent, right? If you hit them hard with just steroids right from the get go, that, that's probably safer and probably more effective than having someone on a low dose of methotrexate. Um, so I think again, really understanding the severity if there's there are factors which which um you know makes them more likely to have inflammation apart other than dose um, just like you guys mentioned and also the duration of inflammation um those are all critical in kind of deciding if we need to administer someone and with what in that case
1: yeah the last article is about optogenetics uh which is not exactly the same but again it sort of ties in this idea these are all actually you said before we started recording these are all really smart people writing these articles much smarter than me commenting on them, which is usually the case with brilliant work. (laughs) The critics get the easy part. Um, So update on Optogenetics for Advanced Retinal Degenerations by Joseph Martel and uh, Jose Elaine Sahel. And so they explain what Optogenetics is, right? The idea of taking genetic engineering that changes the cell's behavior uh, to express these photoactive proteins and you can modulate their activity using light. So anterior segment surgeons think they're super cool for having light adjustable lenses. We're going to have light adjustable cells because retina is way, way cooler. <laughs> <laughs> matter really, really came IOLs, right. So the idea is again, that you could, um, use the delivery of an optogene to a target cell. And then that makes certain cells light sensitive. And then you can activate them, right? So um, they go through this. There's different things on the horizon. Obviously, these are all very early. Different companies um, they list about seven or eight different targets and the devices you would need it. And the one, a few of them require a sort of high intensity light activation um, with these special goggles. Uh, but in the, they talk about in, well, how does this differ from classical gene therapy? This is sort of a mutation independent approach, right? So I would equate this to, you have these latent sort of genes that you are activating rather than you are inserting a new sort of protein in. You are um, using something that in situations that may not be, gene therapy may not be applicable. And they use the idea of like an end stage of generation. Gene therapy doesn't really work. Because gene therapy will not replace those cells. On the other hand, optogenics could work if you can make these cells and photosort or certain make certain cells become photosensitive, increasing the photosensitivity of the residual cells. Um, so, in terms of current trials, they go through several of these trials. Um, many of these are looking at sort of like you know they give a good example end stage RP, and this is all still very early in terms of human development. But this then goes back to maybe this is applicable in situations where gene therapy is not applicable. But the other question is, um, is this safer? You know, from an inflammation standpoint, we don't know yet because we haven't applied it. Um, There still can involve some sort of, um, and and actually you can clarify too, it did seem like it still involves some sort of transfection. So you, you still have to, do something potentially that could aggravate uveitis infectious or not otherwise but we don't know that yet more business for you akshay thomas (laughs) (laughs) yeah bria any any thoughts about i mean again i think this is going to be more for orphan type diseases i don't imagine this will be as useful for um Regular diseases, but maybe this could be useful for some of these patients who have trauma and have end-stage disease and vision loss for years, or patients who um, have only one functioning eye and very limited vision for various reasons. It seems like there could be broad applications of this beyond just a specific degeneration. Although that's what trials will look like. Um, and any thoughts or comments you had after reading this article?
2: Yeah. So the the biggest thought that came to mind was that retina sometimes retina sometimes is just so amazing. You know, I didn't even know that we could modulate cells until I read this, you know, really well written article. And so it's it's really amazing sometimes what some of the the minds in our field are able to think of and and do. Um, I agree with you Jay. I think this is currently intended more for things like RP and Stark Arts and corderemia, but you know, certainly I guess. Anything can happen. So those patients now that see you with macular scars and ask you if they can see again sometime in the future. I, I mean, I think the answer is who knows? You know, anything is possible these days in retina.
1: Akshay, are you excited to not take care of any systemic uveitis and only astrogenic <laughs> uveitis?
0: No, not excited about that.
1: I will say that
0: again, I, I agree with Priya. It's just amazing like how little I knew about this. One thing that I have tried to do more often now with my retinal degeneration patients is to look, like actually frequently look on clinical trials. So i to see what is going on and what's available because I mean, there are just so many trials going on that I honestly might not be aware of and that they might be interested in. So if I can get them in with someone significantly smarter than myself that may have an option for them, rather than me saying there's nothing we can do, um, you know, that, that's great for patients, you know, but but again, I just, I just find it fascinating and I'm so thankful there are people significantly smarter than myself um, that are doing these things.
1: Yeah, I I think that there are people really, really smart in our field. There's a lot of cool technology on the horizon. Um, As cool as complement inhibition is, that's just the tip of the iceberg. I think a lot of these things are going to come down the pipeline. And um, I think it's, I'm very glad as a society that we've recruited um, really smart people to do this, Uh, whereas previous generations had to settle for smart people designing breakfast cereal and commercials for breakfast cereal. (laughs) So... um, all right. Well, I will, I think we break there. We didn't, we never said this, but um, I don't like to be negative, but since you did get sent a cereal cup that I'm jealous about, <laughs> everyone's got to go quick. What is your least favorite popular breakfast cereal from when you were a kid?
2: Ooh, <clears throat> least favorite.
1: Yeah. What was Captain the one Crunch. that like you would, Captain Crunch. Ooh. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. It, it,
0: it wasn't, it wasn't the cereal as much as the dude. Like, I don't know. I just not give me- <laughs> <laughs> so so maybe it's on the cereal it was just maybe it was just the captain so I mean, I, I, you know if someone likes their crunch berries it's fine but you know like like he just seemed like a weird
1: dude i don't know yeah he seemed like the type of dude he would definitely want a perry Bulver block <laughs> for his <intervention. laughs> was a little high maintenance um, Priya, um you got anything
2: my least favorite was cookie crisp oh it's so good there's, though there's so much promise but they taste nothing like cookies. No. After a while, it's not crispy. It's just completely false advertising.
1: You know, you know, I'm gonna go with the hot take. I think Lucky Charms are overrated. I, I think Lucky Charms get everyone loves Lucky Charms because you would take the box and you would fish out the charms and leave them for <laughs> the younger sibling, which is what happened to me as the younger sibling. You just had the rest of it. So maybe it colored my impression of Lucky Charms. But they don't taste that good unless they're in milk. When they're in yeah. milk, the ratio of marshmallows to whatever the other I don't know the charms I guess are that what are they the luckies like well I don't know what the <laughs> grain part of it is, but the grain part of it is gross like it's not good <laughs> it's very bad and I know the ratio of marshmallows to grain is probably better for the dietitians and the parents but for a child <laughs> it's not good and then um yeah. It's just a waste of a cereal. I think it's so overrated. So many commercials, the leprechaun was always so excited to get <laughs> the Lucky Charms. And in the end they taste bad and I'll put it in, I never really ate them, but I'll put it in a, a second place. one well, for tricks. I think tricks are gross too. <laughs> and I think there's a strong correlation between how hard the character in <laughs> the commercial tries to get the cereal and how bad the cereal is.
0: I, I will say, Jay, you know that you can get the, the, uh, the marshmallow bits of Lucky Charms by themselves in packets, right? And then you Oh, that see that? That's
1: great. I mean, that that's just the cure. That's the cure for diabetic retinopathy. walking around. That's wonderful. That's awful. And I mean, they didn't have to do that. They just had to make the cereal part, not taste garbage. Like make it taste good, like Cheerios. Like why not Cheerios plus the lucky charm charms? All right. On that note, guys, I appreciate your time. I'm looking forward to talking again soon, maybe in person at a meeting coming up at VIP buckle or another meeting. Great to talk to you. Uh, Akshay and Priya, take care.
2: Have a great night, Jay. Take care, guys
1: many thanks to doctors thomas and vicario for joining me for this episode listeners remember you can find all 381 of our episodes on our website retinapodcast.com that's R-E-T-I-N-A Podcast.com. they're all there archived and searchable by category you can also get updates in the most recent episodes by entering your email address and getting on our mailing list you can find us in the apple podcast or android podcast app and follow us on twitter at retinapodcast or on facebook Remember, you can always reach out to us with episode ideas. Some of our best episode ideas have come from listeners. You can reach out by email or by clicking on the contact us link on our website. The email address is retinapodcast at gmail.com. That's podcast at gmail.com. Thanks again to our whole production team. That includes doctors Louis Kai, Justin Ma, Angela Chang, Mike Benacasa. Listeners, thank you for what you do on a daily basis. Thank you for the articles you read and publish. And for the patients you take care of every day that inspire the conversations here in the podcast. Thank you for listening. This is Jay Schreider signing off. The feeling.
2: This is straight from the cutter's <laughs> mouth. <laughs>